Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of IGN Unfiltered. It's our monthly interview series where I get the good fortune to sit down with the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by none other than Seamus Blackley. You're kind of, I think you're like a modern-day renaissance man. You're a physicist. You uh, have made video games. You have uh, created consoles. And now you're bringing back beloved console controllers, among other, <laughs> among other projects. But welcome. It's great to have you here. No, thank you very much. Thank so uh, you're not here for your health. You're here. You've, we've got a product to move. We've got this, the Duke. It's I, back. But I, I want to talk through your whole life here, your whole career. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, you know I, don't, I don't feel really uh, particularly like this is a book tour for <laughs> the Duke since, I mean, what an accident that was. I didn't have any intention of, of being a, a controller pimp. <laughs> and now, now, anyway, we'll get there. We'll, we'll, get, get, to, we'll, we'll get, get there. I want to start actually just because, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to get to know you a little bit over the last few years. You were on, uh, you were sort of our expert panelist from, uh, from the, the industry side on our E3 live show a couple times a few years back. Um, you did, the, the actual inspiration for this, for IGN Unfiltered, came from an interview you were very kind to be a part of, uh, which was, Ended up being that we called it episode 201 of our Xbox podcast, which was it was you and Peter Moore and, and Phil, Phil Spencer. Yes, and that was I mean, that's genuinely probably the best thing I've ever done and ever will do in my career. Like getting the three of you there, and you were all just the stories were awesome that you guys told, representing each of the different eras. Of I felt Xbox. proud. I mean, you know, those are two guys who, uh, you know, if I hadn't created that job for them. They could be on the street. You never know. You know, a guy like Peter, basically just a glorified football hooligan. It's, a, it's right. You know, and look, taking him great places. So. It's true. That's okay. true. But um, let's go back. So were you a gamer as a kid? Did you play games in, oh, as yeah. a child? Yeah. One of my favorite pictures of myself is uh, me in my horrifying rust-colored 70s, uh, my parents' horrifying rust-colored 70s living room. Right, the uh, shag carpet. Yeah, whole that's thing. right. That's yeah. right. Christmas morning in like like horrifying patterns, like mismatched pajamas, <laughs> like playing the Atari VCS that I just got. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, you know what an incredible life changing thing that was for me. You know that there was this this machine, and it, but you know at that time computers weren't everywhere. That's true. And so it was just an object. It was this object. It had wood grain on it. You know, so it looked like you know anything around your house. But inside it was a, a world. Yeah, magic. A world that you could interact with. And, you know, um, there were a lot of kids who just wanted to play games, get high scores, and, you know, collect games or whatever. And all, all I ever wanted to do was to be able to make those worlds. So you knew that right, right then, like right even... Instantly. So when I was playing the games, it was like I was exploring what you could do, and I was thinking about it like that. And that was, you know, uh, a hugely formative thing. Do you remember the first game idea you ever had? Do I? No. No, I, I don't. It's meant many, many projects ago, I guess, for you at this many point. Many projects ago. I remember <laughs> some, some early ones. I had a great one that I still kind of want to do that was a lawn mowing game. 
because uh, at that time I was also mowing lawns for money, right? Sure. I and uh, that was a little bit later. I had an Apple II, and uh, I made a game that was a little bit like Pac-Man, but was essentially a bunch of different lawn, uh, you know, houses with lawns. Yeah. And you had this mower that would go at some speed, and you had to like figure out how to cover most of the lawn. And when you I were like done, that. if you got over eighty percent or something, then you move on to the next level. If you didn't, like some guy would come out and scream at you, and you'd be fired. <laughs> Pretty good game. Gamifying chores. I think we do that on mobile phones now. Somehow. That's okay. It had a couple of features I was really proud of. Like one of them was that uh, there'd be like a newspaper on the lawn, and if you ran over the newspaper, then bits of paper would fly around behind the mower and ruin your job. These <laughs> are like super high tech like features. That. Huge feature of the game. So uh, were your did your parents, were they supportive of, your, of this passion of yours that, that you found with video games? Or did, were they kind of just confused by it? Or? You know, I, yeah, I think um, they weren't the, the most technical people ever. And certainly, you know, at that time, many, many years ago, uh, there wasn't the culture we have now where yeah. nerds rule all and you can make a lot of money being a nerd and programming. Uh, I think that... My parents and a lot of my friends' parents tended to look at our love of computers uh, similarly to the way that you look at a kid who had like a bedwetting problem or something. Like, okay, we like really we hope they grow out of it and become doctors or lawyers or something good. And so, um, you know, it seemed to have some benefit to us as kids, like math or something. But all we were ever doing was making these games yeah. and when are you going to get serious and, you know, this kind of whole thing. So really that's what it was. Well, you, your parents were probably relieved that you did – you went to school for electrical engineering uh, and then you switched to a physics track. I did. At some point. So what about physics uh, interested you in your youth? Uh, probably the same thing as video games because – the thing about physics is that you have to be incredibly creative to be a physicist. You have to really, you have to think about things that have never happened before. You have to try to figure out what it is that's going on. You, know, you think about people who tried to understand what light is. Like, how would you, I mean, you know from books what light yeah. is. But you, what the hell is, right, you know, not on how a physics you, level, I have How no do you idea. measure? So you have to have imagination, but you have to have a special kind of imagination. You have to have a kind of imagination that says, I believe in all of the stuff that I know to be true about the world. I know that there is a structure and a set of rules, and we've tested them, we know they're true. But still, even inside that structure that people would say is like very rigid, you have to find a way to be imaginative so you can imagine new things happening. If you can do that, then you can unlock beautiful things, right? Beautiful things. And it's very similar to, to games. I think it's the same. It feels the same to me. Um, you have code that you need to write. You have a program that has to run. It can crash. But it also has to be fun. So how does that work? Well, there's creativity inside of what appears at first to be a very rigid structure. And you find that that very rigid structure is actually freeing and lets you be really creative. And that's the thing. And it's funny. You're, you're in, a, in a very general way right now, describing uh, looking glass games and, uh, and some of your, your, your projects. That, you know, they were effectively simulations, physics-based things in which you would, you would find the fun inside of like so you you landed at looking glass uh after after college and you worked on ultima underworld and the original system shock yes uh my suspicion would be that because uh, you went to tough and i wrote music for underworld nice i don't i never knew that part yes of it. yeah i wrote the soundtrack um, for uh ultima underworld 2 i think Remember? Well, you really are. You are a Renaissance no, man. Just, was, I'm not saying it was good music, but it was <laughs> well, music. Yes. Um, 
the did, finest in MIDI synthesis. What, was it a coincidence that you landed at Looking Glass and, and went to school at Tufts, both of those uh, no, things being in the Boston so area? The, uh, well, <clears throat> maybe. The, uh, uh, I had a postdoc lined up. In, I was a theoretical high energy physicist uh, in something called the superconducting supercollider, which was like the big CERN particle accelerator with the God particle and all that crap you hear out of Europe, but actually in Texas. And it was even bigger than the one they have in Europe. Right. Everything's bigger in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now deader. Because uh, it, was, it was killed by Congress. So this was one of the first experiences that I had being like a, a, a citizen and looking at government work. Yeah. Because uh, I had come back from Fermilab, which is outside of Chicago. It's in lovely uh, Batavia, Illinois, a garden spot, hmm. um, where I was being a graduate student, doing graduate student stuff. Came back to Boston. I'm sitting in my kitchen, and the evening news is on. And on the evening news, the cancellation of the entire project that my entire future depended on wow. was a news item. And I watched these senators get up and say, you know, why are we spending our money on invisible particle thingies that'll never do anybody any good, you know, when we got to spend on defense? And I was like, what? So I, I learned something that day. Which was? Uh, that I needed a job, <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> so I went to the the, the bulletin board uh, at the physics department at Harvard, and they had a uh, an announcement that, uh, uh, or a, you know, a note from some company called uh, it was called Blue Sky Productions at that point. That's right. Yeah. And they were in Lexington, Massachusetts, far, far away. Maybe they were even in New Hampshire at that point. And so, you know, I went to go interview with them because uh, I figured why not why not try that for a minute. Yeah. And uh, they took you on. They were they took even though it was a bunch of MIT guys. They still took me on. <laughs> no, it was they're uh, uh, you know what a good group of people. Yeah, Nur, uh, Paul Nurath, uh, all the uh, Doug Church, mm -hmm. really smart people. Really smart guys. Glass. And yeah, the, the idea was that <clears throat> the idea behind Looking Glass was really simple. I think at the end of the day, we didn't know this at the time. But you know, looking back on it, you kind of analyze it. It's like, look, we, we have enough technical people that we can draw stuff in 3D, which nobody knew how to do at that point. You know, people sure, had yeah. done some of it with hardware. Silicon Graphics was doing it with hardware. There had been some experiments. But the idea that you could draw a real-time 3D environment on a regular old PC was, was a miracle. We'd show demos to people, and they wouldn't know how to react. And you know, you're talking about 486 processors at that point, right? I'm talking about 386 processors at that point. And you know, uh, and uh, my very good friend John Carmack uh, in Texas was doing the same kind of a thing, uh, although with his transform and mappers, you couldn't look up and down, but you could, you know, spin around. Yeah. Um, and he had a much better game than we had that became more popular. It was faster. Uh, but we had this idea that there was something called interactive storytelling, which is uh, a story that takes place because of the environment that you're in. And pieces that are around that get assembled by you into a story, a story you tell yourself. Yeah. And that this technology can enable you to do that. And we felt that the, the 3D code that we could write made games more approachable, not less. Because it's not like, hey, you know, you're Pac-Man or you're, you're this little shape moving around. It's really abstract. And we'd all seen our parents' generation not get that. <laughs> so we thought, all right, well, if we draw a realistic-looking room and you can, you know, throw stuff around and it bounces off the walls, it makes sense. Maybe you'll believe in it. And yeah. if you believe in it, maybe you'll get scared of it. So that was the thing. Interesting. Um, 
What did you learn about making games from from Warren Spector and Doug Church and, and Ken Levine was there too? Ken came after me. Okay. Yeah, Ken came after me. He was a Hollywood screenwriter who wanted to get into games. Yep. And uh, I think on the day that I left to go work for DreamWorks, he came uh, to start at Looking Glass. So that was a very interesting sort of like... <laughs> it just very interesting sort one, of... One in, out. one out. One yeah. in, one out. Um, you know, I learned everything from them because we figured it out together. You know, um, Paul Nerath and, and Warren had shipped a lot of games. And Warren was, you know, a really, really interesting guy to have as a producer because he knew a lot. But the main thing that he knew was not to get in the way of the kids who were discovering things and how to sort of gently guide us towards something that would be a fun game. Yeah. Because we get, we get tied up all the time in technology and look you do this and you can do this and this feature and this feature and we can have infinite maps blah, 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 blah. and Warren would say well you know okay why am I having fun like what's going on right now that's causing me to have fun and uh, it was really super invaluable he was for a lot of us who had come from weird backgrounds um, he was kind of like the first cool I don't want to Rock say star father or? figure, but like, no. Um, he was, he was um, like a wise man and somebody who took care of us. Yeah. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, Warren is a, he's a beautiful person. I mean, he, he's incredible. He and, was in here. I, he's fantastic. Yeah, and he, Warren will talk to you, talk your ear off about all sorts of theoretical stuff about game design and He's very self-deprecating, and he talks about all the things that he screwed up, and um, some of the stuff that he's learned. And he he wants to talk about the abstraction of what making games means, and all of this crap. And it's fine, and it's good, and you should listen to it. And as a theoretical physicist, I cannot in any way uh, disparage uh, abstract knowledge. <laughs> but the most important thing about Warren is that he's got soul, man. He Warren for games, okay, is like you know what the great Motown producers were for those early acts. Hey, here's a totally new medium. Like, what are we going to do? Who is going to guide these kids and their energy and all this, all of these ideas into something that has meaning, right? And he did that because he loved it and he believed in it and he had a heart and he was honest and he was kind and he took care of us and it was incredible. I love that. Um, looking back, this is my opinion. I'm curious what you think. Was Looking Glass kind of like, to stick with the music analogy, kind of like the Beatles of game developers, where this really short peak, but <laughs> but just a, a seminal works that that are still influential today. That that's how I see Looking Glass. I'm curious how you see it. Look, there, so there's a band that I really love called XTC. Okay, there's a guy called Andy Partridge, who is uh, just an incredible genius. Okay. Um, and uh, if you don't know XTC, you should check them out. So they were active in the 80s. They never had a very big following. Yeah. But if you go to musicians, if you ask Elvis Costello or Jay-Z, you ask them who XTC is, they'll know. They'll know all the songs, right? Right. Because they're truly great. There was something incredibly special going on, but it never caught on with the public. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel like Looking Glass was. It was this... It, maybe it was the Beatles, but it was the Beatles writing slightly unpopular music. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it was a really special time. And out of that has come... All of this great stuff. I mean, you know, um, all, all of the games that people have made, but entire genres right. oh, that yeah. have emerged from it, um, ways of doing things. Um, you know, there's a great interview um, 
on uh, NPR a couple of years ago about kids in China who dress up like the Beatles. Did you, did you hear this? I've heard of it. Yeah, so there's, this, there's kids in, in Beijing who dress up like the Beatles. And the NPR interviewer was talking to them. It was a great interview, and I was sort of really interested in this. And then she said, well, so which of the Beatles songs are your favorites? And they said, well, we don't, we don't really listen to the Beatles. We just dress like them. And the NPR interviewer said, well, I, don't, I don't understand. Why don't you, you dress like the way? Like, isn't it about the music? And they said, no, you know, we don't understand why their music was popular. And the interviewer was very confused by this. And then she realized that the reason is that the Beatles were so important and so influential that to an 18-year-old in Beijing, all songs sound like Beatles songs. So there's no way to figure out why they were special from this end of it. Uh-huh. Because everything sounds like the Beatles. Yeah. Precisely because they were so important, right? <laughs> it's true. And so I don't want to make an analogy to like what I worked on as being like, you know, that kind of great stuff. But there are elements of things from Looking Glass that show up in all games and, and I catch them, like you see them and you, you know, there's a little bit of pride because it's like, yeah, you know, I know for a fact that we were the first people to try that and, you know, and it worked and this other thing didn't work and thank God nobody does that thing, <laughs> but a lot of people do that thing that worked and so I think there's a lot of that. Why, well, uh, one other looking glass thing, I, I went and looked this up, it was on the official college website. According to quotes from you, in Tufts, Shit. in a Tufts magazine article, uh-huh. it's a college college magazine article from a, a, a piece back in 2007, you were given the name Seamus because your Looking Glass coworkers held a contest to rename you. Yes, that's is true. that accurate? That is accurate. Can and you then, tell me that story? Because that is that is was, interesting. For for various and sundry reasons, it was decided, and and I use the passive voice there to indicate that. It was not decided by me. Uh, it was decided that I needed a new first name. What's wrong with Jonathan? There, there are a myriad problems apparently <laughs> with that in relation to me, which I, w- I won't bore you with. Okay. But the, the, the thing that happened was a contest, uh, again, that I was not present for, <laughs> that I did, I did not take part in. And, uh, you know, on whatever day it was, that was the first day of work after the contest. Yep. It had been a Monday, but we really did not work ever. So whatever day it was, Wednesday, I showed up, and uh, the little name under the mail slot, because everybody still had mail slot, <laughs> yeah. said Seamus. And there was a sign on it that said Seamus. And my email was Seamus. Oh, no. And my paycheck was Everything was Seamus. <laughs> Your paycheck? It was great, though. The best thing, though, about it, which was strange, because that was such a bizarre experience, but the best thing about it was that later on, you know, when my friends, you know, like Tim Schaefer or, you know, these guys, <laughs> my friends, would start getting weird shit and stalkers and all that. I never had any of it because no, there was because I didn't exist. True. <laughs> I don't exist. But later it caught up with me when I was trapped in like Norway or somewhere um, because Microsoft had booked me a plane ticket for Seamus Blackley and my ID didn't match it. Right. And so I eventually had to go to the courthouse and I made Seamus into my middle name so that I was safe from all of that. So now, now, now I'm officially locatable again. So it, How, it caught up with me. For a minute I had a stealth existence. But you, you stuck with it after Looking Glass. You just, you kept it. I, how can you, you liked it? It was it was like you just ex- you accepted it. It's like if your friends all got together and gave you a really ugly dog. What are you going to kill the dog? No. Your friends love you. They give you this thing, <laughs> so you know you learn to love the dog, and then it has a happy ending, and that's what happened. 
very it turns something down like that. And what what better gift is there than a name? Um, looking back, uh, what what's your? Do you have a favorite Looking Glass game, either that you worked on or didn't? Uh, I absolutely do have a favorite Looking Glass game, and that is uh, the first the first System Shock. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. It it's really a really is. beautiful thing. Have you been following the the remake that's going on? I have a little bit. You yeah. know, I, I was so happy to see Paul Nerath, you know, out there doing that again, um, and uh, <laughs> a little bit concerned because I started to get twinges about how I should remake a game um, from the past. But uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I know, and I can't believe I just brought that up and, and <laughs> handed that to you like that, but. Uh, uh, no, I, like, is it coming out soon? I, I they, actually, they just had said they were they were actually delaying it. They just needed more I, time. I think to I saw work some. I, I saw the, the Kickstarter or the, or the the fundraising video. Yeah, and um, you know it's a it's a strange thing to look at when you worked on the original game because it's the combination of you know uh, excitement and shame, and <laughs> fear and nostalgia. You know, and the Greeks correctly understood that nostalgia is a disease, so you have to be careful with that. But you're here hawking a controller. Again, as I said, I'm not here hawking the controller. The controller is here, and I am and here. It's and a coincidence. There is a complex relationship between me and the controller, and we can explore it more. We're, we will in a few minutes. Um, so another game in your career. This is, uh, this is from your Wikipedia page, so who knows if this is My actually Wikipedia, true. Yes. Following the Do com- you have a Wikipedia page? I hope not. That's, you don't check because yeah, I don't. It's it's yeah, <laughs> it's like having an inaccurate police record, and you keep on getting arrested for no reason. Well, let's see what happens okay. here. Right. Uh, according to your Wikipedia page, it's, it says this: following the completion of Flight Unlimited in 1995, Seamus Blackley planned to use that game's computational fluid dynamics code to create a combat flight simulator called Flight Combat. Yes. However. A new manager at Looking Glass demanded that Blackley instead design a direct sequel to Flight Unlimited. Blackley refused and was fired in late 1995. Is that how that went? Fully accurate. Fully accurate. A rare, fully accurate Wikipedia entry on anything. So uh, you really did, you you were sticking to your guns on this one, clearly. No, well, so this was more than just some kind of like uh, ego exercise. When we released Flight Unlimited, the biggest game in the world was Microsoft Flight Simulator. Absolutely. Yeah, millions of copies every year. That was ubiquitous. And millions of copies at that time was like billions in, you know, opening day now. Yeah. So uh, it was a big behemoth. And to beat it, you had to do something it couldn't do. And so we did a few things that it couldn't do. We rendered realistic terrain. And the airplanes flew like airplanes, which is a big surprise to a lot of people. So much so they could do aerobatics. They could do aerobatic maneuvers, which you couldn't do in flight, in, in flight simulator. Yeah. And so Flight Unlimited got a lot of press for that. And I was a pilot. And, you know, it's so important to be authentic. You know, this is a lesson that we learned very, very early on. I think it's part of the reason that uh, Looking Glass was so successful because everyone at Looking Glass was super passionate and played every release and looked at everything and had been making games their entire lives. And we were exactly in the target demographic and understood right. and empathized with the gamers we were selling things to and we were in no way going to fuck over a gamer ever. Um, and the same thing was true with Flight Unlimited. Um, we, I, I, I felt very passionate about sharing the experience of flying with people and I felt that you know, our 3D engine being very, very advanced and much more advanced than the 3D engine in Flight Simulator at yeah. the time could give that expressive feeling of flying. 
because the flight simulators at the time were all about the instruments and like, you know, I'm going to fly to Chicago and it's going to take nine hours yeah. and, you know, uh, it wasn't very visceral. And we provided that visceral experience and it was super popular. It made a lot of money. Um, but then what do you do after that? You don't then try to expand that into the boring areas that your competitor has, right? Um, you recognize that the team has been able to innovate and you move past the thing you're doing into an area that your competitor hasn't even dreamed of yet. Okay, so I hired F-16 pilots and I cool. started developing an F-16 aerodynamic model and I was going to take the training system, the aerobatics trainer, which was also a new thing at the time, and have it train you in air combat maneuvers <laughs> with the F-16 and we're going to call it lead-in fighter training, which is what you get if you make it through all the tests in the Air Force yeah. and you get to fly a jet and then you get to fly a fighter, you go to lead in LIFT and you learn these maneuvers and you start to learn how to be an air combat pilot. It's super exciting to everybody. We're all so excited about it. Um, the problem was that Flat Unlimited had made a lot of money. And because of that, in this crazy way the world always operates, new management had to come in and everything had to change. Yeah. Right? Because Every time. you've made money, so we better change everything so it's all <laughs> fucked up and it, and it ends. And so this is how the world works. So this happened. This is my first experience with it, right? And so this guy comes in. And he's very arrogant. knows nothing about games. knows nothing about physics. He claimed to have invented, like, you know, the IP protocol, right? But, there, but this, was, this was a question, but we didn't know. And I remember he farted a lot and he wore weird socks. This is basically all I remember. This in the, this pivotal meeting where he looked at me and he said, well, if you're not going to agree to start copying Microsoft Flight Simulator's features, then you don't have a place with this company. And I said, I, you know, this company's not going to exist if you do that, which was accurate, unfortunately. And you're in your, you're in your 20s at this point, right? You had I was the 23. You had the, that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's quite a wisdom for a 23-year-old to... Wisdom, it was like pure peak well, and no, ego you... and bullshit. But, <laughs> but, you know, but I happened to be right. And the only reason that I knew that I was right was because... I was in the target demographic. I knew what I would buy. Yeah. I would never buy somebody trying to like replicate Microsoft Flight Simulator because they had years and years and years, every airport map, the whole world. Probably a much stuff. bigger budget. Who the hell wants Microsoft. to do that? Like, yeah. If your skill is doing this amazing magic trick that makes it feel like you're flying, shouldn't you push in directions where feeling like you're flying is the point? <laughs> or, or do you want to like just go ahead and just kill that and let's yeah. like have you follow a needle on the cockpit? You know, like, right. What? Like, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, it was my first experience and it was formative for me to see somebody come in who didn't know anything about your business or your customer and make decisions based on what probably sounded to the board of directors and the investors like very wise adult things. Yeah. So much wiser and more adult than these crazy passionate kids. And everyone just conveniently forgot that the crazy kids just made you tens of millions of dollars by being crazy kids, right? And this is why the analogies to the music industry are always so good because the music industry struggled with that for so long and kind of has it right now. You know, you see Cardi B come out and she's so terrific and authentic and you just want to hug her because she's just so honest. And like you have this music industry saying, like, oh, she's an idiot, she doesn't speak English. And it's like, no, 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 no. No, she speaks English like to, to this generation better than you know how. That's what you're not understanding. Yeah. And this was a situation like that. And they paid the price. So out the door you went uh, to DreamWorks, correct, yes. at that point? So uh, 
where there were like 80 employees at the time. Which is, for that, at that time, that's a lot, right? For, for one yeah. team. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. 80 employees. Oh, oh sorry. Yes. I misinterpreted. I apologize. Yes, that's oh, not so a lot all, for a movie studio. Okay, all of Dream, not, not, the, not the game side that you were no. on. All of DreamWorks. Okay. Now I've got that straight. Mm. Um, so, Trespasser, did you pitch it or did you inherit that when you got there? I'm kind no, of. No, I, so I, what I wanted to make when I got there was I wanted to take. I, so I was all full of piss and vinegar about the experience with the flight game. Yeah. And you know, worked on System Shock. There was another game that I had worked on um, and completely failed to deliver the physics systems for, which was called Free Fall or Terra Nova, I think is when it came out. Terra Nova. Oh, sorry. Springs of Bell, yeah. Uh, and um, they're like 50 guys so pissed at me for forgetting the name of that right now, and I'm sorry. Um, so I had it in my mind to take these technologies and to really keep pushing in the direction of Looking Glass. Okay, If I couldn't do the Looking Glass, fine. I'll keep pushing in the direction of Looking Glass. I want to make a game where we'll try literally to just put you in an environment somewhere with a bunch of things around that all work and you figure out how the hell to deal with it. You yeah. figure out how to get So that everybody will do something different. Everybody will have their own experience of what the game is, and you'll feel this technology will enable you to be something that you could never be yourself. It was like, you know, a really passionate idea that I had. And the answer back from the guys running DreamWorks Interactive at the time was, great, we can give you the budget for that if you do it in the Jurassic Park license. <laughs> so, okay. Is, is that awesome do you, to Let's hear go. that, or is that terrifying to hear that? Um, or just do you do you is that not of interest or the is it a history of video game <laughs> licensed product is not bright and proud certainly not then um, and um, uh, yeah was, I think so you reluctantly bit, were on board with this uh, yeah, maybe yeah maybe. yeah, yeah so, so agreed to do that and um, started making a game and it is so so trespass because I I bought it day one I played it back in the day and uh, well, I, I would get up and hug you but our microphones and shit would get intertwined. Uh, or should I just or should I give you your money back? Which one should I do? I don't know which one to do. Well, with it, no interest. No, uh, no I and I just remember not being able to progress super far. Right. Um, but it was. To me, I mean, looking back on it now, I I genuinely believe, d- despite flaws, that game was ahead of its time. Would you agree with that assessment? Um, oh yeah. So we uh, it was an interesting thing, you know. So I was young, dumb, and full of it. I was I didn't understand how much the success that I had enjoyed at Looking Glass was due to the people at Looking Glass because I was young and I didn't get it. Yeah, I brought some guys with me. Um, I was very arrogant and I thought we could do anything. So I started writing all these physics systems and I was also the project leader, which is a terrible thing to do. You don't, you can't be in charge of the critical technology and also run a big project, it turns out. If you're me, maybe other people can. <laughs> maybe you could, but I couldn't. And so, um, you know, that was a really big problem. The other big problem, we, there's several interesting things happened at the same time with Trespasser. First, we had these great ideas. Okay, we're going to run a physics system. We're going to run that physics system at everything. We're not going to pre-animate things. It's going to run the character. It's going to run the, the enemies. It's going to run the objects in the world. It's going to create the sounds in the world. It's going to drive the plot 
of, of, of the world. Yeah. And we're going to hire real actors to do the voices, which was crazy. We're going to hire Mini Driver. We're going to have Richard fucking Attenborough, you know, uh, play John Hammond. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we go to London. We record Richard Attenborough. It was terrific. It was a life-changing kind of experience. And incidentally, that was really cool because we described to him how the game worked and the way that a game script worked. And he was an older guy, and he completely understood. <laughs> he completely understood. And the performance he gave was perfect for it. And other voice actors we worked with who were much younger had no, no idea and gave <laughs> terrible performances. It was really interesting. Um, but he's such a, such a brilliant guy uh, and such a kind guy and um, appreciated that we were trying to do something new and took care of us. It was the kindness. That's and, great. You know, I wish I could thank him for that now, but it was a big deal. Um, so we, we did all those things and many more. Interface things, look, we'd have your arm and we'll teach the hand to know how to grab everything in the world so that when you interact, it's not just like you hit the space bar and the door flips open. Yeah. Why can't you grab the handle and move it? Can we just make it like that? And also, we don't want to have any HUD. Like, you know, we, we experimented with a bunch of different ways. Right. You um, ended up with the, the tattoo on uh, Anne was the protagonist. Yeah, thing, but right? we didn't end up with that. Realize we had like four or five different things that we were going to do to indicate health. We thought of having damage on the body. We thought of a bunch of things. And unfortunately, the, the real killer thing for Trespasser was that the management of DreamWorks got a deal with a big uh, like chip manufacturer um, to get some money for the budget of the game. And part of the deal was it had to ship by a certain date. Uh-oh. And so the Trespasser you see was the set of features we happened to be on at that date. Okay, And it was an experiment going. So the tattoo just happened to be the idea that was running when we had to ship that date. Yeah. The way the arm <clears throat> interface worked with the mouse mm -hmm. just happened to be where it was on that date. The way the physics system dealt with problems and interpreted just happened to be where it was when we had to ship on that. It was tragic. Yeah. Because as, as wonderful as it was that DreamWorks afforded us the opportunity to make a game like that that was so crazily innovative, right? Absolutely. And, and so they didn't know enough about games to know how dangerous that was. But they also didn't know enough about games to know that it's really important when you have something at that state to just give it more time to finish. How much more time did you guys need? I thought about this a lot, and I think it probably was going to take another nine months. Which back then is longer than it would be now, right? Because, because, because it wouldn't, not, projects were not shorter, necessarily, a bit shorter, right? Not necessarily now. the case. It was getting pretty long then, but to, 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 to put it in context, Unreal, that shipped around the same time, took yeah. longer than that past its date that it was supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. And Epic kept on funding it because it was like almost done, almost done, almost done. And we didn't have management that did that. And I was too young to know how to, I didn't know how to, I, I, di I didn't know what to do to change this. Plus, this wasn't like a game company. This was a movie company. And, you know, the movie guys don't understand, you know, if, if you decide just a movie is done and you show it in the theater, it can't like crash the theater <laughs> and like kill half the audience and make them piss off, right? So they didn't get that. And uh, and so I think it was a big shock and surprise to them. And I thought it was, I honestly thought it had destroyed my career. And I have to say, on top of all of that, look, you know, I was an arrogant little bastard, right? I'd been the smartest kid in every class forever. And I thought I knew everything. And I could have managed that a million times better. And so, you know, it is my responsibility that that didn't work out. But, you know, it was also a fascinating time 
to try to to fail at that, right? It yeah. was fascinating because of the timing of the of the financing to fail at that. It was the advent of 3D cards. Absolutely, yeah. Beautiful deferred renderer that could draw forests in software, right? And on a fast machine, it could draw this huge draw distance. You could just walk and walk and walk and see the trees coming to you and, and mountains, and you get to them, and it would all look consistent, right? Uh, and then all this hype started up about 3D graphics cards. And they were terrible. The first generation was terrible. They didn't really work. <laughs> and they certainly didn't work with our deferred rendering. So you put in a graphics card with our engine, it would look miserable. <laughs> and it was like, oh, really? Like, like all of that work just because of timing. You know, everybody was excited. And, um, and it, of course, it didn't work out. And we had done a lot of press. And I had talked a lot about with passion about what I thought the future of games was going to be like and interactive storytelling and what I was trying to do with this. And people got very, very excited. And then when we shipped this thing that wasn't done, the backlash was terrifying. And it also came, incidentally, at the very beginning of Internet fandom. Like, like that was... Welcome to the Internet, was right when it started to go. And so, like, death threats, you name it, everything, all at the same time. It was extremely dark. And I was smart enough to understand that this was my responsibility, and I took it, I took it really... Hard. What do you think about what that game could have been had you had that extra time? Uh, not so much anymore, but I sure did at the time. Sure did at the time. Because it's, I mean, it did, it did. Did it deserve to get the horrible reputation that it did? You think? Because it really just kind of became almost infamous. It's it's hard to say, and I, I've actually I enjoy now taking crap for it. I think it's hilarious because, um, <clears throat> well, two things. First of all. I think with age, you know, and a little bit of, uh, of self-knowledge, you know, I know my own faults and uh, it doesn't bother me to get called out. Um, and I think that it's really, you know, it's funny the way people give me crap about it. And, and, it, and it's fun, too, you know, when I'm not um, defensive about it, when it's like, yes, like it wasn't done. Lots of it sucked. And, you know, here's what we're trying to do. You find out that people... People are angry because they wanted it to be something else. It's true. Uh, and you can have a conversation, and it's good, and you know, and everyone can understand. And this is one of the things I think that's best about gamers, which is that we all want, we all want to have this experience that you only have as a game, right? And you come at it from so many different directions, and everybody can talk about it. Everybody is, every gamer you talk to has an idea of what that is. You know, I'm not sure that's true of of movie audiences. Um, you know, I think it's probably much more true of people who. Uh, you know, are, are big music fans. You really have a, you can have a conversation with them about what you were thinking, what you're trying to get at, and that, that turns out to be good. I mean, boy, the, <clears throat> just because the, the, the idea of Trespasser was, was incredible. This open, you were roaming Site B freely, yeah. and you could, could just do what you wanted and progress in this physics-driven simulation. And uh, keep on... Keep on trying to remind myself to send Todd, Todd Howard an email. But there's one moment uh, when I first got um, when, I, when I first got Skyrim, and uh, I started out. I was marching through the forest, and I had to stop, and I was just crying. I was crying, and I just had to like, I just had to cry and stop and take a walk because it was what was on the screen was my exactly my ultimate fantasy <laughs> of what I wanted walking through the forest to be like in Trespasser. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you've actually been talking about it a little bit on social media lately. Like I see you, oh, my social media feeds like a sewer, man. Who knows what's in there? <laughs> but all right. But no, I mean it seems like like I mean, 
Have you played it lately? Have you gone back and looked at it at all in um, recent years? When I was going through the myriad uh, boxes of old crap, in which I may have discovered an old Duke controller, which sparked a whole... We'll get to that. This relationship. <laughs> um, uh, I came across some E3 builds. Um, and... Um, got them running again <laughs> and uh, sent them to some of the, the fans. So I played those. And uh, it was interesting because it's even an even earlier snapshot of the technology, obviously, than what we shipped whenever yeah. we shipped. And I immediately got back to where I was on all the things that I wanted to fix and everything that I saw and what needed to happen and how it could be and how it should be. And it didn't just didn't get there. Really frustrating. Uh, last trespasser question. I, I'm just curious, did... Did uh, you ever deal with Spielberg at all? Did he ever come look at it or have to sign off or any of that stuff? All the time. Um, you know, the the reason that I left CAA was in large part because Stephen called and he said that, uh, you know, he wanted to work on another Jurassic Park project and that he felt like the first time we didn't get uh, we didn't get our due. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he understood. He's a he's an actual gamer. He is. He gets yeah. the score. Boom blocks. Um, yeah, and he's, a, he's also an incredibly nice guy. You know, I've, I've had incredibly good luck. You know, War Inspector, I think I, I mentioned to you, and, you know, guys like Steven Spielberg. Steven is the same way. And really great people tend to have this in common. They elevate the people around them, and yeah. Steven is like that. <laughs> and it's important to keep that in mind when you think of them. Um, another example that I should point out, I think I've talked about this before, is, uh, is Johnny Wilson from Computer Gaming World. Now, Computer Gaming World at that time was, you know, the biggest thing going. Yeah, that games. and PC Gamer, yeah. It was before PC Gamer, okay? And um, he, so the, the, the GDC after Trespass Relief. Yeah. Um, I was terrified to go. I didn't want to go. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what career I was going to have. I didn't know if I'd be welcome at GDC. And so I went to... It's uh, a conference of your peers, the Game Developers Conference. You know, like, it was... Uh, I, I didn't know if I should go. And, and I, it was terrible because I'd gone from, uh, you know, sort of feeling like I belonged to feeling like I had not only um, uh, uh, screwed up terribly, but also, like, hurt games because I had hurt the idea of physics in games. I had hurt the idea of interactive storytelling. I hurt all of these things with the backlash to this game. Right. So I felt like I'd done damage and violence to, you know, to my friends and to the industry. Which, you know, maybe sounds overblown, but that's how I felt. And so I was terrified. And so um, Johnny Wilson, um, who had like written stories about Trespasser and also about Flood Unlimited and System Shock and everything else, said he wanted a meeting with me. And, I, and so I agreed to it like after hours <laughs> so I went to this booth everybody's leaving I like snuck in and Johnny Wilson is there and he was like the godfather of the game press those yeah. days, and he was a big figure uh, and he said to me uh, he, he I said hey you know do you want to talk about it and he he took my hand and he said keep making games that's awesome and that's why I was an Xbox well, that's, and that's where we're leading now. So Microsoft, you went to work on DirectX. Mm. Uh, that was what you went there for. Yes, I, was, I, got, <laughs> I had met Bill Gates demoing Trespasser technology when we first had 
the physics system going with the with the sound hooked up, like fully made by the physics system. So yeah. we had cans and stuff, and a dinosaur standing there, and you could like throw cans of the dinosaur and tumble them down the hill, and they go in the water. We make sounds. We showed this to he was so he was so impressed by this. Uh, we showed this to Bill Gates. Sorry. And he's so impressed by this, and he said, oh, you know, you should come work at Microsoft. And so when all this went down, I was like, uh, you know, could I? And so I got, you know, I got an interview. And so I went to go interview. And um, I uh, went through a programmer interview, which was terrifying, because I interviewed with, like, I interviewed at Microsoft with Mike Abrash, gave wow. me a programming test, yeah. okay? Um, and Todd Laney, like these are like legendary guys. Todd Laney wrote the kernel for Windows 3, okay? Um, and uh, you know, somehow made it through there and ended up as program manager for entertainment graphics, whatever the hell that meant. <laughs> uh, and so I had this job and it was, it was weird. It was terrifying because um, I felt like I had to hide out. I felt like I hide away from, you know, the mess that I made. Really interesting time. Uh but during this, you end up, you wrote a pitch paper for, behind you, the original Xbox. Well, Sony came out with this announcement of PlayStation 2, and they started saying, uh, we're going to beat Windows. We're going to have Linux installed on this device, and it's going to be in your living room, and this is all you need for your email and all the stuff that you need in your house. And this, is a, this was something which was taken fairly seriously at Microsoft, and I think... I think, and I don't know if anybody is around Sony anymore who remembers this, but I think that the Sony PR guys, the Sony ad guys, didn't really understand how serious an attack this seemed like in Redmond. Yeah. I think it was just like, look, and it could do this too. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> and in Redmond, it's like, they've declared war, you know. So I'm sitting there as a program manager of entertainment graphics, and I now know the plans for all the graphics chips and the plans for DirectX and the plans for all the sound stuff and all the game interface and input stuff, right? And it's like far ahead of anything Sony is ever going to do with PlayStation 2 and on a tighter time scale. And so I start to thinking, I'm thinking like, you know, I've shipped a lot of games on the PC. The thing that holds PC games back from not looking uniformly as good as console games is that every PC is different. It's like a goddamn Turkish bazaar. You have to support every possible thing for everything, and then you end up dumbing down your content in the game so that you're sure that all your customers can have a reasonable experience. And I had just delivered a totally unreasonable experience to a bus <laughs> of customers, so I understood this. Um, and so one night, on a flight back from visiting my, my girlfriend, who lived in Boston still, um, I had just got a new laptop, you know, because Microsoft will get you a laptop. Sure. Some sort of new thing I ordered. And I had it, I had it shipped to her house because I was so excited about it, which was not cool. So she said, you can't open it while you're here. You can open it before you <laughs> flight back. And I was like, all right, I'm sorry. Um, and so I'm like trying it out on the plane. What am I going to do? All right, yeah. well, you know what? Here's the thing. If we want to really, like, screw Sony... We just need to define like a standard. No, 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 it needs to be like a hardware standard. Well, no, it can be an actual device. We can make an actual console. And it would be better because you can use all the tools on the PC, which are much better than the tools that are being used for PlayStation. And you can use all the you know, developer equipment and stuff and all the, the methodologies and, and, and the architecture for the PC and the architecture for the GPUs is so much more advanced. And it's based on real research and real papers and real use case scenarios. And, and oh my God, we could kill them. This should be a console. So by the time I landed, I'm like, we need to make a console. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so I sent this thing to my friend Kevin or called him and like it was freaking out at him. And we started inviting ourselves to meetings saying we should make a console. And we found guys at Microsoft who were thinking of making a web tablet for your refrigerator. And we said, no, you shouldn't do that. Look at the size of this game. And they're like, oh, shut up, kids, shut up, kids. And we were persistent and we you know, got more and more and more and more guys until finally we were in front of Bill. And I knew Bill because of DreamWorks. So I was able to right. like, figure out a way to get us in front of him. And he somehow still thought highly of me. So he believed me when I told him about graphic stuff. Other people said it was bullshit. He would say generally that, uh, you know, that, that he felt that our team, you know, understood better and what should happen. And, uh, through some <laughs> measure of just sheer bullshit, we were able <laughs> to get through all of this, but it was okay because it wasn't real bullshit. Um, it was the kind of thing you do when you have ignorant friends and they're your friends and they want the company to be successful yeah. but they don't understand that there's this huge opportunity so kind of for your for their own good just tell them whatever they need to hear to feel good <laughs> because you're sure that you're going to do something that's going to make a lot of money okay and it's going to be really good for the organization but you know maybe talking about it um, in a way that doesn't take into account their perspective is not going to really help you to get it done if I can really equivalent the, equivocate the, the crap out of it. So that's what we did for a long time and, and, and until it eventually worked. So the Xbox was born at 35,000 feet, basically. Yes, something like that, <laughs> maybe, yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, there had been, there had been previous Microsoft, you know, game console things, which was a thing called the MSX. Microsoft had done a, or at that time was working on a version of Windows CE to go on Dreamcast. It didn't really go anywhere. There have been other discussions. So Microsoft was in many ways pregnant for this. And, you know, we were the right guys to show up with it. So if you look at it in modern terms, it's like, you know, Microsoft had had the friendster of video game console. It failed. It had a MySpace of video game console. And then we were the Facebook. Like we were at the right time with the right thing. And the battlefield had already been prepped. And like yeah. it was good to go. So, we, but we didn't know that at the time. We thought we did it all ourselves. But of course, you never do it all yourself. Uh, it started as the, the it was the direct Xbox. Yes. So, well, because well, because right. I mean, it makes this sense. This is it's gonna it uses all the DirectX technology, but it's its own like you know, it's a box. It's its own platform. So it's the box that runs DirectX, the DirectX box. Now let's go find a name for it. Go hire naming experts. Go right, go that, go. That's what I was gonna ask you. Is, naming, is, naming, naming. So who? At what point did you guys just land on on the code? Well, basically, the code name Xbox. Yeah, everyone called it the the, the <laughs> code name, and people were terrified of the code name because in you know in Japanese culture, like if your wife is standing down the block and she's like checking to see if like there are any reservations at the restaurant and there aren't, she'll hold up an X, which means no. And so we were really worried that the Japanese the Japanese market, which was super important in games, sure then. That we'd be making the no, the no box. It's kind of like the Chevy Nova in, in Spanish-speaking countries, right? Uh, it's not a great decision. Um, but yeah, it was a code word. And, and Kevin actually went out, and the first guy ever showed this thing to, went out and uh, found naming experts. Um, and came back with all these names. He'll know what they are. And they were... Like they were really bad, like some really <laughs> bad names. Like, and and but the, the thing, the terrifying thing was that you know at that point then, 
because it was such a big project, all of these guys, the clueless, non-gamer sorts of executive guys, were also getting this list of names, and the, the problem was one of them was going to like this name a lot, and they were all going to decide it was a good idea. Right. And then it was going to be the fucking Pippin. And, and you know, you got to be <laughs> careful about this. And so uh, I can't remember exactly what subterfuge, but Kevin played some subterfuge, and it was very effective, and the Xbox name got chosen. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So you like the Xbox name? I can't tell anymore. I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> it is what it is. And there's a... Like, it's, it's worked out, right? It's obviously worked out just fine. Well, when... Like, you know, and there are a small number of people who have this experience. It's a weird experience where a thing that occurs to you one day becomes like a global brand. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. That happens to everybody, Shane. No, but, but there are, but there are definitely, you know, and it's, it's a fairly large group and it's a weird thing because you can't, like, everybody else that you talk to assumes that, like, Xbox was discovered, like, you know, in a mine somewhere. Yeah. Oh, look, we'll release this, you know. (laughs) Uh, And not that, like, the decisions had to be made by people. It's the story I like to tell about Ed Logg and Asteroids, you know. So Ed is trying to figure out how to make the game end. And so he's like, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do this. Maybe we should have three ships, right? And so it's a thing that's invented by a person. But then 10 years later, it's like, well, of course, every game has three lives. Everyone (laughs) has always known that, right? And so... (laughs) Same thing is true with Xbox. The idea at the time of Microsoft making a game console was like a terrible joke. It was a joke that was so weird that it wasn't even a funny joke. It was just a weird joke, <laughs> the kind where people change the subject and move away from you. It was that kind of a joke. And now it seems manifestly obvious that Microsoft got right. Not the case back then. Hmm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Don't you have a good story about hiding under a table during the Xbox reveal at CES with, with Bill Gates and The Rock on stage? No, they, so that's a lot of stuff, different, different confusion. Oh, my bad. Stories. Okay. No, it's all right. There was a, when we announced, oh, God. So the, the, not the next year, but I think the year, so two years after, I was scared to go to GDC. It was an incredible thing. Um, I'm announcing Xbox with Bill Gates. Right. On stage at GDC. <laughs> Um, which was to- which was completely surreal. So we had a bunch of demos, uh, and we had them running in these giant silver X's. You know, yes. This is when you should cue the picture of the giant silver yeah. X. Um, and they really were running in there. We had built those, you know, we had soldered them by hand. Like, you know, me and, and, and the, the rest of the guys on the team literally soldered them together. And we wrote the software for them and found friends and people to write software to do these demos that showed fundamentally the way that the GPU on a PC could handle graphics much better than the kind of, you know, less 
evolved but still very powerful cell processor in the PlayStation. And the way to think about it is just that the cell processor was designed by really smart CPU guys who hadn't had graphics people beating on them for 10 years. <laughs> and the GPUs were designed by people who had had tons of input from people who were making real applications. So it was just better. Uh, it was more efficient. It used the power better. It had more memory where it was important. It had features that were actually useful for making things look good. And so we wanted to show those things off, but it crashed a lot. So at GDC for that unveil with Bill Gates, Kevin Backus was literally underneath a riser, underneath the box, with his hand on a reset switch and a video cable that he could switch between the two boxes on. So we'd always have one of the boxes running the same demo at the same point, so we could switch it if it crashed, and it didn't crash. <laughs> That's what... Um, the Under the Table story was actually with Trip Hawkins um, when we had the earthquake in Seattle. And uh, we had a, a, a whole bunch of people come in and tell us what games they thought they thought should be on launch. Yeah. And uh, we ended up under the conference table um, during the earthquake. And certain individuals may have been freaking out like, like toddlers. Um, and uh, there are other stories that I won't mention. <laughs> well, I do want to hear uh, the story. You, you did tell, a, uh, I think, the general version of this on Unlock 201, that, that show we did with, with Phil and Peter. But... Um, the story of the Duke. The story of the Duke. What, so it was a – ultimately, the Duke is what the Duke is because of <clears> – <throat> pardon me, it's circuit board size. Is, yeah. that, is that correct? Well, the Duke – The, the Duke, original well, yes. Xbox the controller. The Duke was what it was uh, because um, of the way that big companies work. So we got the green light to do this project. Everybody wanted to have input. So. Yeah. There's a process of running around and keeping all the people who don't know anything about a game console, which is what, of course, everyone was worried Microsoft would do, and there would be a disaster. So there are people running around like me trying to stop everyone who is super senior and really wealthy and has been at Microsoft for 37 years from, like, screwing with it to make it, like, what they think it should be when they don't know what the hell it should be. Uh, and you have to pick your battles. Yeah. And so uh, I was off trying to make sure we had a hard drive because that was a big cost at the time. And a hard drive and yes. Ethernet connection were things that Microsoft very much wanted to kill. And it was easy to kill them because you could point to every other game console not having it. Why would we need it to compete? Okay, And again, it's because we were PC gamers and we understood what was coming, mm -hmm. why it was important. Uh, and also to try to court Japanese developers, to try to get Japanese content, build publishers, all these things. So I'm off doing all these things. And the sacrifice you make is, okay, well, fine, do the controller. How bad can it be? <laughs> so anyway, it transpired that uh, some good things happened, some bad things happened. A good thing that happened is the offset thumbsticks, which I think is a really tremendous thing. I think that having offset thumbsticks with a D-pad under your left thumb is awesome. I, I don't, I don't want to play without that ever anymore, right? I'm with you. Other things were not as awesome. <laughs> um, the circuit board. The circuit board. So circuit board design and layout is an art. And if you're going to make consumer electronics circuit boards, you need to work with people who are familiar with it. They didn't work with people who are familiar with it. Circuit board came out about this big. If you have a circuit board that's, this big. That's a lot. You, you aren't going to make a dual shock. <laughs> okay, you're going to make something else. So uh, the, the poor uh, industrial designer was given this dinner plate and told to put something around that would work. And, you know, her name was Denise. She did the best that she could. She did a tremendous job. 
Um, they made a bunch of prototypes. I think they knew it wasn't going to be received very well, so they were sort of secretive. And then there was like a big unveil of here's the controller. And boy, were people unhappy. <laughs> boy, were people unhappy. So I, me, fronting the thing, I'm out there like, yeah, like, look, huh. here's, the, here's the controller. Like people throwing things, like golf balls. I like got golf balls thrown at me. Wait, I don't really? Know the hell, this guy got a golf ball. Yeah, <laughs> people did not like the controller. Where was this? I think that it was at um, a, it was an event in Denver, Colorado. Nothing against Colorado. Obviously, maybe the person had been trucked in from, from Oklahoma or something. Um, and uh, I remember we were showing Madden, we were showing not Madden football, we were showing Microsoft's football game. Yeah, the uh, NFL fever. Yes, which Mike Abrash <laughs> had, had written the first ever uh, uh, fuzz, fuzzy stuff renderer, and they had you know grass on the yes. field, which was amazing, and that's Abrash. So that's the, the flip side of the horrifying, terrifying interview where Mike Abrash sees if you can program, is that then he's like, you know, working for Xbox and doing that, which was so great. Uh, and he's, so Mike Abrash is another guy who is calm and elevates everyone around him. This is a theme. Um, Went on to work on Quake. Uh, yeah, Oculus. He's now doing incredibly interesting things at Oculus. Wait until you see. Um, even, I, I don't know all of it, but what I do know is amazing. So I'm showing off the football game and then uh, there's a Q&A session and people start asking about the controller and people start booing and some guy starts to throw stuff and there was a golf ball in it. That's how much people hated it. And, and you know, online and everywhere else, I mean, everyone hated it. Everyone just hated it. It was super traumatic. You told me a story, too, that uh, you took it inevitably. You had, you know, the Japanese market, as you are mentioning before, hugely important market. Uh, it did not go over well there either. I, well, I didn't even take it. I went to like my first meeting with, I can't remember who it was. It was a, it was a famous game designer in Japan. And I was, you know, it was the first time I met them. And you know, meeting this guy who's your hero. And you're hoping that they'll you know, want to work on your platform and be excited about it. And the first thing that he says is, you know, I'm very concerned that you do not understand how to make a console. <laughs> Oh, wow. It was all based on the, con the, the controller because, wow. you know, especially in Japan, you know, and I think I've said this on Twitter, you know, there, there are some Japanese apartments that are, you know, only twice or three times the, the size of the Duke. <laughs> so you know, there's no way that, that this thing is going to fit into that consumer profile at all. And so it was really, really offensive. It was offensive in Japan. It was offensive. It was offensive. It was a cultural faux pas. But the, uh, we did... The, the whole world ended up getting the controller S out of it. Yeah, it turned out to be true. a pretty good controller. That is true. Yes. So there was a, a someone, don't know who it could be, organized a petition of Japanese developers. Somebody at Microsoft who talked to a lot of Japanese developers. I guess I had no idea who it could be, um, and then submitted that somehow to the to you know to to the the top management of Microsoft. Yeah. So somebody who also knew those people at the same time, and I have no idea who it is. And, you know, and it caused there to be budget suddenly freed up to design a controller specifically <laughs> for Japan. And this was the controller S. But um, uh, before we get to the new Duke, the, the resurrection, uh, how you were talking about the hard drive and the Ethernet port and that people wanted to cut it. And, you, you know, you were building for the future here and you knew how important it would be. How confident were you? Because what a lot of 
especially younger gamers might not even remember or realize is, of course, the the Ethernet port didn't even get used for online purposes for a, until a year after the console shipped. Right, until Xbox Live launched in uh, the fall of 2002. In fact, one year to the day mm-hmm. uh, after the, the the console itself had launched. So, when you were building and shipping the original Xbox, how confident were you that 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 Ethernet port was ever going to get put to use. No, it was 100% confident. 100%? Yeah, 100% confident, yeah, because we knew the trend in PC gaming. Yeah. And we had just made essentially like a codified, like, you know, standardized PC to write games on. And so it was inevitably going to come. You know, you, 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 <laughs> you set things up so that there's an inevitable conclusion, <laughs> and then you're calm and you wait, even if everybody else thinks that it's a risk. So that was really clear. Um, it, it is an interesting thing generationally, though, to, to talk to gamers today who can't imagine not having persistent storage on their console or an internet. Connection. Right. You know, you turn a PlayStation off, it's gone. <laughs> Your game is gone and everything. Right. The, the original cards. PlayStation and the, play, the PS2, yeah. On uh, no, a PlayStation, yes. On a PlayStation. Well, just not a PS4. Uh, We're past uh, that. <laughs> uh, but no, but, you, you know, if you, if, you, if you turn off, you know, any console up to Xbox, that's it. It's yeah. all gone. And, uh, you know, memory cards aside, but that doesn't have any, you know, potential changes to games or DLC. The idea of DLC just didn't exist. Nobody even really thought about it. And, um, you know, it was really clear that that was going to be a big deal. But it is interesting to talk to people about it because, again, looking at it from now back, it seems so clear. All of this seems so, so obvious. And it's not entirely, um, I think, People had to decide. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't just found in a in a, in a was, mine. It was risk. It was meetings. <laughs> people yelling at each other and that kind of thing, you know. And people not believing you. And so there's a certain amount of pride that you feel seeing that happening. But again, it's impossible to tell people why that is because it seems so obvious and clear. Why would there be a fight? You know, <laughs> it's clear. You just did the obvious thing. You know, which is pretty cool. It's like the highest compliment somebody can give you, I think. So. Uh, what were your goals for the Xbox heading into the project, and and did you achieve all those goals at the at the end of the day on on November fifteenth, two thousand one? Well, as you get closer to the end of a big project, your lofty goals all shrink down to just shipping. <laughs> so you just sort of like you get that one done, um, but more or less, yeah, you know the the idea of basing a console on developer tools. The idea of the most important thing in the video game business being the developer and designing the hardware so that it's easy for them to use, being the smartest business, that was intentional and I really worked and really proud of that. You know, the, the coolest metric of that is actually Sony's developer support blossomed after the release of Xbox. <laughs> you know, if you ask any developer, it was like night and day difference. Interesting. And that's an interesting metric that you can look at it by. Um, you know, there, there are problems. There are failures. I think that the, uh, the game ecosystem for Xbox um, has never been as strong as it needed to be. I think it's very difficult for Microsoft to take the content business seriously because it's not in their DNA. And it's very natural for Sony to take the content process uh, seriously because it is in their DNA. Sony faces different challenges. Uh, but that's really, you know, Xbox's biggest challenge. And even at the time of release, um, you know, we were frustrated because we had allocated money for exclusives. Right. 
and we weren't allowed to spend it. Huh. Um, because, and there is an argument for this, rationally, you have this cash left over, and you're losing money all over the place and everything anyway, why would you spend that money? It doesn't make any sense. Well, of course, it makes perfect sense if you look at it from the standpoint of being content business, right? But it doesn't make any sense if you look at it from the standpoint of being like, you know, a software hardware business, yeah. which is what kind of company Microsoft is. So, you know, this problem of exclusives that's a hot-button topic today has been around since the beginning. Uh, it's been a problem since the beginning because it's a cultural problem, okay? So, you know, it's not the fault of the people running Xbox right now. It's not even the fault of Microsoft, you know? It's not the Scorpion's fault that he's a Scorpion. Um, it's a challenge that can be best understood by understanding that Xbox, as obvious as it seems, you know, is really not something that came from the core of Microsoft, and it's still an adjustment period. It took Sony a while to get PlayStation right, to get the PlayStation business right. It took Nintendo a while to figure out the Nintendo console business, and it takes the same amount of time for Microsoft, as impatient as everybody gets. And there will be an end. There will be a time when Microsoft figures out its way of having a pipeline of big exclusives. Now is not that time, but I'm confident that it will come. And the reason I'm confident that it will come, that it will come, and the reason that I'm confident that it will come is precisely because of the history of Xbox. Microsoft made Windows, Money, Excel, okay? They were never gonna make a game console. It may not seem like it now. They made a game console. The leap from Excel to Xbox is far greater than the leap from not quite enough exclusives to enough exclusives. That's true. It will happen. Yeah. Uh, did you ever worry either leading up to the release of the original Xbox or even in the, the early going after it hit shelves, did you ever worry that, that the Xbox wasn't going to make it? Did I ever not worry that the original <laughs> Xbox was not going to make it? No. It was terrifying. Totally terrifying the entire way through. Didn't make any sense. The Microsoft brand didn't carry any weight with consumers for entertainment. Did Halo, is, is the Xbox here because of Halo? Of course the Xbox is here. Xbox was the Halo player for a year or yeah. more. That's what it was. That's what it was. And even more remarkable given the fact that at that time, if you will recall, everyone you asked would say, that shooters will never work on a console. That's you have true. to have a mouse and a keyboard to play a shooter. Yeah. So here's a shooter on a brand new American console. It's craziness. <laughs> and it worked. And it worked. It worked. Uh, what did you think of the 360? You know, you weren't you had left Microsoft before the 360 uh, spun up and, and certainly was released. So what what did you think of it? Especially now, obviously, just looking back on the benefit of looking uh, my, back on the whole thing. My first reaction was pretty petty, which was that I had wanted an external power brick because it would make the overall size of the thing smaller and more petite. Yeah. And at that point, I was, like, I was super worried about this Japanese aesthetic, uh, which I still love, and it would have made the thing smaller and run cooler. And then the, the power problem started, and then I thought, I'm really happy we didn't have an external power <laughs> supply. This is great. Um, I don't know. You know, I, um, if I'm completely honest with myself, um, the 360 took several steps backward. Really? In terms of its honesty about being a game console versus trying to be a stealth play into the living room. Um, the management team changed. I left. Other people left. 
and it became more platformy and Microsofty and like more about you know an injecting content in the living room. And you saw that actually in the interface across all the different releases, right? And all the blades and all this stuff. Yep. And suddenly ads would come up and it's trying to sell your television and Microsoft this and Microsoft that. And then it would stop trying to do that and then start some other thing and try some of there are all these experiments going on with it, right? And it was trying to figure out what it was. And this continued, you know, as we moved into, and, and, and Peter really struggled with that. Um, Peter and, Moore. Yeah, Peter Moore. Peter's heart is absolutely in the right place. But Peter came into uh, an organization that I think it would be difficult to prepare for the um, for the ferocity of the of the uh, I don't want to say the politics, but you know when when we were pitching Xbox and launching Xbox, um, Microsoft Office was the most profitable business in the history of mankind. Okay, <laughs> it's really serious. Okay, and then you say, oh, the game console, you know. And so when you're the game console guy, you, you don't have like, the same kind of sway sure. in the meetings where you decide who, what budget's going where and, and who's and in you're, the And you're in, what was it, uh, Millennium E at the end of the street, right? Yeah, the coolest place. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that it's, it's a big struggle and, you know, it's to, to, to figure out how to, how to navigate those waters. And I think Peter did an incredible job. The, the way Peter dealt with the Red Ring of Death by placing himself on the railroad tracks is a lesson to, to every corporate manager, whoever comes after. That was an insane thing to do and it showed that Peter absolutely understood and was right there next to all of his customers. That's how you should do it. Yeah. Um, but that pressure from Microsoft to make the Xbox into a Windows PC in your living room is remorseless. It's remorseless because it's not some people who have an agenda. It's built into the entire company. Uh, and I felt it, and Peter felt it, and Phil feels it now. Um, and it probably reached its most dangerous apex with the with the with twenty thirteen with the unfortunate announcement. Yeah, um, in which we saw a huge event on the Microsoft campus. All the excited gamers go in, and there's a presentation that literally makes them feel embarrassed to be gamers, right? I, I, I saw people coming out of there like, looking like shocked, right? And it wasn't because anybody was stupid or that they were trying to irritate the customers or any of that. It was that that pressure for so long finds its way into the messaging and the way that things get designed and the way that things get talked about and the way that products get built until... It becomes a device that feels alien to the very people who, who, who love it most. And that was a dangerous moment. I don't know. How did you feel about that day? I mean, it, it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was very surprising. I mean, it was, it was not with the, the direction, with how beloved the 360 was and how, you know, Peter has come in here and told the story. In fact, on the 201 episode, he told the story of, of – uh, you know, listening and to to Epic and and doubling the RAM in the 360 so that game creators would have more to work with, and that was going to be you know to to go from that to to the uh, to that know, presentation to the to the all in one. You know, I guess I read Robbie Bach's book, uh, and he talks about sort of the 
and his and Jay Allard's plan for the for the 360, and and even going back to the original Xbox, where they talked about how you, you've got to you've got to get the hardcore guys on board first, and then if you get them, you can work on right. the, the mass market later. And the the Xbox One, I think we were surprised. I'll just speak for myself. I was very surprised that it's like, oh wow, they're they're just they're going to try it. They're going for they're starting. They're trying to start at. To yeah, get they, everybody, they, they lost. Part. They lost the plot entirely, and, and even more subtle than that, you get the hardcore guys by getting the developers first, and that's what they and, did on the 360. Yeah, and everyone got that up until then, and then they lost it at that moment. And so, look, a lot of people give Phil a ton of crap. They really do, and I see it online all the time. But you know, the guy who did, and, and, and Phil, if you know him, and I don't know how easy it is to pick up through the promotional stuff that he does because he has a lot of pressure to be scripted and a lot of pressure to say certain things. But when you see Phil in person, he's another one of these guys who elevates the people around him. He really is. Um, he did the equivalent of what Peter did with the Red Ring of Death, laying himself on the tracks and saying, stop it, cut it out. We need to change the way we're doing this or it's going to fail. And he turned it around. And so, again, you know, people have a lot of complaints about you know, exclusive content and other things on Xbox, you know, Phil, Phil will continue to put himself on the tracks until it's right. And, you know, I'm no Phil apologist. Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of shit that he's done that's stupid, right? And I don't like the look of him and his eyes are too fucking close together. But I do know that he, his heart's in the right place and he's going to do the right thing. And the reason that I know that is the history yeah. of seeing him turn that moment around. Because that was a terrible moment. Let's be honest. That was a terrible moment. Well, we were talking... You and I earlier about about people that are that are real that, that that they if they're not doing the job they're doing they need to keep creating something somehow. Yeah. We've seen time. To, I mean, Phil Spencer's a he is a he is a gamer. Yeah, he is at home. He always has playing been, games. He, he doesn't. Be, yeah, yeah. He doesn't just go home and and uh, hop on a yacht and forget all about That's video right. games. That's right. Like he goes home and plays Destiny and yeah. plays. You know, whatever, there's all a thing the big you, stuff. There's a thing you can see with Phil. When, when Phil gets asked a question and he has to, like, uh, espouse some sort of, like, you know, corporate uh, message. And I don't want to bring up a specific example because I don't want to be a dick. But you can tell there's Phil the gamer who doesn't buy any of it. <laughs> and then there's Phil the guy who's a Microsoft executive who has to find a way to, you know, to thread these two things. And he may not always be able to be... Um, as totally blunt as a guy like me can be, who's no interest in it anymore. And, and frankly, who never followed his media training anyway, <laughs> even when I was the guy in that job. Um, but behind the scenes, his decision is always about the game first, and about treating, treating gamers and developers right first. And so the plot is, is picked up again. Um, and I think it'll be okay. And I, and I hope, given the like possibly you know lawsuit-inducing candor that I have shown... <laughs> That all of this that you know you can trust me when I say that. Oh, I do. I I, I, yeah, I've, uh, so there's one more. There's one more uh, way the winds change before we get to the end here with with uh, okay. with the all new right, Duke. All right, all right. But I want to talk about you had uh, another fascinating career move, a, a different total as different aspect of your career that I think a lot of. General gaming public doesn't know about. You know, they, they if they're if they're old school PC gamers like me, they might remember Trespasser. Uh, most gamers probably know you as as the creator of the Xbox, but you also uh, you were an agent 
for game developers. You yeah. represented game development talent behind the scenes. So you basically, it's like, it's like the, almost like the player becoming, uh, just saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to play. I'm, I'm going to coach. I'm going to, I'm going to put on the headset and I'm going to yeah. become a coach. Uh, you represented Tim Schaefer. You represented Vince Zampella and Jason West during the, the big Infinity Ward Activision, uh, blow up. So, uh, why, I guess why go that move? I had to represent Warren. Represented Warren, which was as well, which was an incredible, uh, incredible honor given how much he had done for me. Um, I had, I got it in my mind that, and and this this relates to the exclusives again. I got it in my mind that um, even though we had created a console, we hadn't solved the problem of making it easier for game developers to innovate. Uh, this is very disturbing because. Um, to our naive minds, um, we had made the best hardware with the most memory and best tools and blah, 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 all this stuff. And yet we were seeing the same games as sort of ported to it. Uh, with one exception, notably, there are several exceptions, but the most notable, of course, is Halo. Um, and, uh, and Halo was already greenlit and going by the time that we gave them this horrible problem that, oh, you know, sorry, Jason, you can't put it on Mac like you wanted. No, 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 screw you. You have to put it on this console that might fail. <laughs> and he's like, ah. Um, so sorry about, sorry, Jason. Jason Jones. Um, and uh, um, I realized that the real problem was was money. And, and of course, like, it's of course it is, and everybody knows this, and you know people follow the money and politics and everything. Problem was that it was getting increasingly hard to take a bet on something novel when that bet was going to be 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 million dollars. And publishers are having a hard time. Hell, console manufacturers were having a hard time. Sony's having a hard time. Um, finding their way around saying to shareholders and investors with a straight face, this is a wise investment. Of course, the game could fail and we could lose it all and damage the brand, but it's a good investment. And so I started to think about this, and I, um, I read books about how the movie industry solved this problem when movie budgets started to climb the way that game budgets did. This was in the 1970s. And the reaction was to do something called structured finance, which is a fancy way of saying spreading the risk around. And there are ways to do it that make it suddenly into a responsible endeavor. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a, a company and a fund called Silver Screen Partners, which was the first or one of the first. And um, Paramount and Universal and other studios started to use these, these tools to responsibly finance pictures that would never otherwise have been made. Pictures like E.T., which was one of the first big structured finance deals. Huh. Um, and in fact, the, the attorney who put that together ended up being Jason and Vince's attorney. Um, he told a great story about how Stephen decided he wanted E.T.'s neck to go up and down. So they needed an extra like 80 grand in the deal. <laughs> so we had to go back. Oh, after I closed all the paperwork, you can get another 80 grand. Um, but this is the kind of thing that happens when you're making entertainment all the time. People who do other types of financing like real estate don't understand this. This is yeah. crazy. What do you mean you didn't know? I shouldn't even be investing in you if you don't even know. It's just the opposite in entertainment. You want the guy who doesn't know. You want the guy who's going to be crazy and creative and make something the audience has to have because it's new. 
so how do you, you know, how do you, how do you do this? So, um, I left Microsoft. I was very fatigued from fronting Microsoft and started a company that was going to do this type of financing for games. And I ended up getting recruited into CAA where the guys who had started that type of financing did it. Yeah. In the seventies. And they taught me how to do it. And so I built this big department there doing structured finance for video games. And the, the mechanism of doing it was to represent my friends, like Tamara Warren, as clients. So now I have the big agent and I have a client. That's not really what I was doing. Like I was, what I was really trying to do was get the money together so that we get, go to a publisher or enable a publisher to take a risk on a big idea. You know, a big idea from Tim, some crazy idea, you know, brutal legend. Yeah. Um, Psychonauts. And to responsibly let them go crazy and make something entirely new. Um, and, and it worked. It worked pretty well. So you were, you did represent Vince and Jason during the... Oh, oh yes. So what can you... Because we only, gamers really only got bits and pieces of that story. Do you have any sort of insights as to... You know, that, listen, how that, that that went. I mean, that uh, first of all, that had to be. I mean, I got to talk to Vince about it a little bit on on this, but it ha- and it had to be terrifying and stressful, and well, the, and I'm sure there must have been a lot of anger involved. It was basically fear. You know, the the Infinity Ward thing was uh, a bad situation. Um, the root of it was that. Activision decided that the amount of royalty owed to the development team was so high because the game was so successful. Yeah, it's a it, billion dollar franchise that, that, that they invented for Activision. But but hold on, okay. So yeah. you got to see it from both sides. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be a warrior for these things, okay, which is what I was supposed to do. Yeah, you got to understand the other side. So from Activision's standpoint, if I'm Bobby, I'm looking at this check that I have to cut to this development team. Yeah, and it's an absurd number. My board's going to barf on this number. And I have an agreement with them. And now suddenly all of the decisions about how to remunerate these guys seem irresponsible because the number is so big. Okay? I'm sure you've had this happen. Like you go to buy a car and you put too many options on it and now it's like over your budget. And you're like, oh, how did that happen? Or, you know, you run the air conditioner too much during the summer and the bill's crazy. I think it's the same exact feeling. Okay? Okay. Bobby, you know, Bobby's a tough guy. Um, and, I, and I love him to death. Uh, and I hate him and I love him, you know, it's, it's how he is. But, and, and, and honestly, one thing that Bobby also takes a lot of crap, he saved Activision for, for no good reason, like fully out of the toilet and made it into something huge. You have to give him tons of respect for that. Okay. Uh, the other side of it is it was disrespectful of him to screw around with whether or not he was going to pay these guys and they got really upset. And so they asked for help in the negotiation. Um, and I stepped in to help them, and we had to bring in more help. And eventually, unfortunately for everybody involved, it it meant that they separated from Activision. They were fired, and they started a new team at Respawn. Uh, and then at the end of the day, <laughs> like I think uh, from where I sit, this was actually a tremendous thing because it certainly didn't hurt Activision's bottom line. We got a whole new game franchise and studio out of it that's awesome. Yes. A whole bunch of guys inside of Activision development got the opportunity to pick up the mantle of, of, of the franchise. True. And make what are starting to become some really good games with it. Uh, and so I think in Toto, 
I think it was a good thing. But did but it did, certainly did suck at the time. I'll tell you that. Did Vince and Jason get the money and the, and the D- Infinity War team that that largely left? Did they get the money that they were owed and and had deserved according to their legal agreement? I think the best way for me to put that at this point is that everybody ended up uh, feeling pretty good. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, that's and I, and I think that includes Activision. I think Activision ended up okay. Good. You know, and and at the end of the day, that's the best thing. But it certainly was. It was a weird thing to be in the middle of what at one point was a billion and a half dollar lawsuit. Um, there was a, it's like a, uh, whatever year that was, a couple of days before Christmas, um, in one of their filings, Activision put my mobile phone number. And so one day at like 3 p.m., like on the 22nd or something, I got like 800 phone calls. And it was just a weird, weird, it was a weird time, man. It was a weird time. Yeah. Uh, so... I don't have a good segue for this. The the new Duke. The new Duke. <laughs> All right, so uh, so I'm I'm being yelled at. Um, I'm being I'm being. Um, uh, let me rephrase that. Uh, I find myself in a situation in which I am being vigorously encouraged. Yes. To unpack these ancient boxes yes. that have come from many places, including my old Microsoft office that I have never opened before. I start opening them all, and. In one of them, I find one of the Dukes that I took around to Japan and got hammered with. And I'm recalling this and thinking, I should take a funny picture of this. I'll get my, my 12-year-old to hold the controller with his little hands, <laughs> and I'll make some jokes about Duke. So I do that, and I start making some jokes about Duke. And suddenly, I, you know, this, this tweet... <laughs> Is one of these things that gets, you know, like 80,000 impressions or something and like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of responses. We love the Duke. We love the Duke. And I'm thinking, like, you love the Duke? Like, screw you. Where the hell were you when, when I was getting golf balls thrown at me? Love the Duke. I don't believe it. So I gave some crap back, but people really did love it. It started to get, get to the point where I was feeling like I was insulting people who genuinely yeah. uh, love this thing. Well, they associate it, it with, part of their, with, part of their, with wonderful memories. I think so, yeah. And, and, that's, that's, and, and I was very honest the whole time about the fact that I, I hate the thing. But, wow, they really love it. And uh, one of my Twitter followers said, you should reissue it. This guy's special ed. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, you know, should I reissue it? Like, boom, like, you know. <laughs> Hundreds and hundreds of thousands or like a million and a half impressions. I can't remember what. And like thousands of replies and all these things. It's like, oh, my God. To the point that Phil is like DMing me on Twitter saying, damn. And uh, I said, all right, well, um, you know, could, you know could, Phil, could we – is there any way we could get the IP? Could we – because nobody's ever – Microsoft has never given the Microsoft logo. Right. They, they, to a third they own party it. You don't or, own or this. The, or the shape. It. Yeah. And it was funny, too, because, you know, gamers think I own all this stuff, which is great. I wish that that was legal, uh, but I don't. And so Phil arranged for, uh, for me to get control of, of the IP to do this reissue. And we found Hyperkin, who were, a, you know, a, a third-party hardware manufacturer in good yeah. standing, um, who had actually proposed something like this before. Hmm. Um, and you know now is the time, right? This is the, my old MySpace friends through Facebook thing. <laughs> uh, now is the right time, and so there you go. It happened, and and um, honestly, now that you know a little bit more about the story, yes, you know the opportunity to bookend such a painful thing that I saw as such a failure at the time 
with something as cool as the relaunch of this controller is really great because it, it, it means that it ends up having a happy ending, which is important, right? So if we if we can come in on uh, the close shot of the Duke, the new Duke, uh, this I I don't mean to tease people. You can't buy. Uh, the green one. This was a. You guys did a, a very short run of these. It's it's going to be the regular black one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that came with every original Xbox. But uh, the far and away the best feature, which I, I would love you to speak to here, Seamus, is any t- you can turn it on this way, but you can just push this anytime you want, and you get the original Xbox boot up sequence, which is that's awesome. That is the signature touch that makes this. I think <laughs> because it again it just. It's like a dopamine hit of nostalgia. It is good. It, it, it's a good thing. Yeah, and that was <laughs> whose idea was that? That was me. That was that was. Uh, I felt that that in order, and again, this might just be my insecurity from the history of the thing. I felt there had to be something else about the reissue that would make it feel more modern and more special. And yeah. I had always felt, as a fan of the VMU, the Sega VMU. Yes, I'd always wanted the Xbox controller to have a VMU, and so this sort of addresses that itch also. <laughs> uh, so. You know, as soon as Phil said that, I, I sat at my dining room table and, you know, I got an X-Acto knife and I started carving out the jewel of nice. one of these controllers that I had and I got it in there. Um, and I have a, you know, in my, my day job, uh, I'm the CEO of a, of a big physics laboratory. And so we have a lot of equipment. And so I uh, got an OLED display and I mounted it in there so that it was the same size as the Xbox foil that sits inside the normal jewel. Uh, and I put the jewel back over it. And then I, uh, I recorded the boot up from an yep. Xbox, and, and I put it on there, and then I did something evil, which was the first of a few times I did this with the Duke, which is that I just went ahead and posted it on Twitter so that everybody <laughs> would think. You're really painting was, Phil Spencer into a corner on this one. Uh, but it was all right. That wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard. Um, and, and he was pretty psyched about it also. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but with- it is, I'm telling you that. The value, and this is this is a thing that's I think really important to be said. Um, the value of just doing something is so important. I mean, that's why there's an Xbox and everything we yeah. talked about today that I've ever done, and anything else that I've ever known anybody, musicians and artists, everybody ever done. So they just sit down and do it. It's really easy in life to get into the habit of waiting until you have permission, or waiting until you have the budget, or waiting until you have the money, or waiting until you know something's going to happen before you do something. You just do it. So I just sat at my kitchen table and I just carved out the jewel and put the OLED in. And and look, it worked. And, yeah. and so remember that. Just go ahead and do the thing that you want to do. And it may not be perfect or it may not be the final one or it may not have all the polish you want, but you're doing it. And the only way to get the money and get the permission and get the situation that you want is to show everybody that you really do intend to do the thing that you're doing and that you can do it. Keep it in mind. I love that. Uh Will that screen be used for anything else? I have no comments. I have no comment. <laughs> no comment. No comment. This is an interview show. Wouldn't it be a terrible shame if a full color OLED display in a controller was only used to play a thirty year old animation? It's not thirty years old, but it's <laughs> an old animation. Wouldn't that be terrible? It would be a little It'd terrible. Be a terrible thing. Terrible thing. Yeah. You have. Uh, you just. You rattled off some friends. Tim Schafer's of the world that uh, he just maybe maybe they can with their games I put do. something cool in there. Does Tim do uh, in, animation and stuff? Does that, yeah, no, he might have a game development studio yeah. that might be um, able to help with that. 
Yeah, so we'll see on that. We'll see what the future Maybe Raz involved. could dance around in there on Psychonauts too. That would be very, very, very cool. Be cool. Yeah, yeah the, boy who, <laughs> the boy who ran away from school to join the circus. Yes. Uh, so what? It, it sounds like F- Phil Spencer was, was no, pretty... No, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Sorry. Raz, the boy who ran away from the circus to join a school. Right. Um, God. Anyway, Tim, you almost got a, a, a DM from Tim on that yeah, one for sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, sounds like Phil was pretty enthusiastic about it. What was it? Was it tough to get sign off? Like, did you know? What did the buck stop with Phil, or, or did did it, a bunch of lawyers have to get involved? Uh, and, Phil, Phil has the same problem that everybody does running a big organization like that, which is that you 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 can't be Caesar and just tell everybody what to do and off with their heads if they don't do it right. <laughs> your guys can't feel totally powerless. So you need to just say, I think this is a good idea. What do you think? I really believe in this. And all you're really telling them is, if you think it's cool, you're not going to get in trouble doing it. <laughs> but if you don't think it's cool, I can't force you to do it, right? Yeah. And so really, this is an example of a whole string of guys inside of the Xbox organization thinking that it's cool, you know, at the end of the day. Good. Because Phil's not the kind of manager who goes around shooting people or whipping them to make them do stuff. <laughs> um, and so it worked out pretty easily. Uh, I, one thing I do want to ask you about the controller. These new shoulder buttons, mm-hmm. these left and right bumper buttons yep, that were added them, up love here. Love them or hate them. Uh, I'm sort of curious why they're there. I'm neither, I neither love them nor hate them. Because they effectively, you're replicating the black and white buttons. So what, uh, what was, was that a... Did, did the Xbox team come back with that as like a compromise, or did you want to put those on there? We all, we and the Xbox team wanted to be sure that you could play modern games with it. Yeah. And to play modern games, you can't play modern games without bumpers, so. You do have, but you got the black and white button. <laughs> Even your own controller, you're like, really? No, no <laughs> one's thumb can get to the black and white button. You know that. I know that. You it's all know my that. job to ask. I have to ask these yeah, questions. I understand that. All right. It's journalism. You've done a great job. Well done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well yeah. done. Well, um, so you, what, the last thing I want to ask you is just what, what's keeping you busy these days? Because it does seem like. You know, I follow you on Twitter. I, I check in with you, and it seems like you've always got an interesting project going on in some medium or or thing of another. So yeah, well, what's, we've what had is, a, there've been a few secret things that have gone over the last couple of years, uh, and it, you know it's frustrating. I can't say much about them, but uh, we just have a uh, uh, closed funding, a uh, big venture deal for a new company. Excellent. Um, and uh, it's based on um, a really interesting and cool breakthrough in uh, uh, in uh, computational electrodynamics, and uh, you'll be hearing more soon. Interesting. I, I'm eager to hear more. There you go. Uh, so I'll let you go. But the the new Duke. By the way, actually, you know what? One more. Where did the Duke? Did the Duke name start at Microsoft? Or the Duke name started at Microsoft. So so Brett Schnepf was the product manager from hardware uh, who ended up being in charge of the Duke. Yeah. Okay. His son is called Duke, so he named after his son. Nice. Yeah. I never knew that. That's uh, cool to, glad to get and that Brett's story. Brett's an awesome guy, so it's actually a great story. Excellent. Well, the new Duke can be had, uh, by the time this interview airs, it's out now. It is uh, like $70, it. right? $69.99. And it's, I guess, hyperkin.com. Hyperkin.com. Is the place to get it. Or GameStop. Or GameStop. You, you, 
uh, Twitter bullied them into into carrying it. <laughs> I Twitter bullied GameStop. <laughs> I love you, GameStop. I'm sorry. We uh, and and they they've moved at a brisk pace. They have GameStop, moved at a brisk pace. Yes, they have. They have sold out uh, in pre-orders a couple times. So yeah, so the uh, you know pre-order run it's done well. Uh, are, will these will they be available for for a while, or is it going to be kind of a limited run and then they're gone? Kind no, of our thing? intention is to make them available for a while. Excellent. If I can end the story. Yes. With the next Xbox exclusively using the Duke controller, <laughs> my work would be complete. <laughs> you, you can you can call it a career at that sure. point. Sure. I'm not sure that that's likely, but that would be pretty great. Uh, Seamus Blackley, thank you so much. It's always great to see you. Uh, Seamus Blackley, the creator of the original Xbox, the uh, instigator, instigator of the new Duke. The ringleader of an outspoken minority. Yes. Also a physicist, uh, renaissance man, game designer. He's done it all. Looking forward to see, uh, seeing what you get up to next. Uh, Seamus, thank you so much. For more from the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry, be sure to check back every month for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered. You can find it on IGN, on YouTube, or on your favorite podcast service. I'm Ryan McCaffrey, and I will see you next time. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons & Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out The Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Join co-hosts Will and Brian as they break down the lore of a rich multiverse 50 years in the making in a lighthearted and beginner-friendly way. They cover everything from character creation options to tips for dungeon masters. There's something for everyone, no matter how long you've been playing TTRPGs. Get inspired while learning all about the unique planes of existence. Get the in-depth knowledge you need to help your combat encounters feel impactful or learn about the origins and pantheons of every race and class the game offers. No stone is left unturned as every edition of the game is explored and explained in a way that benefits players of all different levels of experience. You can expand your TTRPG horizons in a way that's as entertaining as it is educational just by listening. All you have to do is go to your favorite podcast app or YouTube and search for The Dungeon Cast.